You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Welcome, everybody, to the RHI SAC podcast. This is Paul Malcolm. I'm CTI, Intel Operations Engagement Manager for the RHI SAC, and I'm here with Rob Fuller today to talk about vulnerability disclosure programs, i.e. bug bounty programs, how to set them up, how to get them established within your organization, some really lightweight, no-cost things that you can do initially, as well as some things that you should think about as your program matures. So with that, Rob, do you care to do a quick introduction? Sure. So uh, my name is Rob Fuller, obviously. I've been doing pen testing and red teaming for a very long time. I recently transitioned into management, but I have a lot of experience when it comes to vulnerability disclosure because I've been on the researcher side quite a bit. I've been on the receiving side of it as well. I've also recently been on the management of those programs uh, as well. So I have a lot of different points of view on vulnerability disclosure. So it sounds like you've seen kind of the whole gambit, Rob, and that's an awesome segue into kind of starting this talk. In that last part where you're in transitioning in management, actually getting the opportunity to form or shape your own program, how did you initially sell the value of it or talk to the internal stakeholders and actually get them to start nodding their heads and saying, yep, we think that's a great investment or reason to divert resources at the end of the day? So once you actually phrase it or frame it correctly, it's it's a really easy sell. However, you got to be careful in this one particular case that you don't go too far to one side. And what I mean by that is essentially what vulnerability disclosure programs or, or bug bounty programs are is essentially the ability to tap into the resource and experience, knowledge, and overall brain power of a large amount of researchers all across the globe for a very small fee, essentially. And so researchers, bug bounty, like AppSec, security, red team, all of those people, full-time employees and contractors, and even boutiques cost a lot of money. And so you can usually do them one, like a, a pen test or a red team assessment once or twice a year, depending on budget, because they are expensive. Whereas with a bug bounty program, you only really have to pay for what you get, right? So in bug bounties, you can say, I don't have to pay for all of the time that someone's possibly looking at things and not finding anything. So when you talk to them about dollars and cents, when you're selling a program like this and the, and the value, it's really easy from a business point of view to think about it. Little to no front-end investment. You know, it's almost like a commission that only you only pay it out when it actually gets realized, if you will. Exactly. So that's the easy way to kind of uh, sell it from a business point of view. From a security point of view, you get good and bad submissions all across the board. And I'm sure we'll talk about it. But when you get valuable submissions, when you get good submissions, sometimes they come out of left field of things that you wouldn't even think of. And and many times they're not things that even the best DAST and SAS scanners on the planet can find because this researcher just happens to have the experience in X or Y. And it's super easy to kind of do that. And just reeling it back in real quick, one of the one of the downsides to playing to that part of the bug bounty program to to selling it in that fashion is then you'll have the executives or leadership say, oh, so then we don't need security people if we can just tap into this bug bounty program thing and we need, you know, less of this, 
And definitely, definitely not a replacement. If anything, a complement or a a very good augmenting resource that has little to no cost or very limited cost is kind of where I'm hearing you go. Is that right? Exactly. Absolutely. So you just got to play it a little careful in that aspect, and so that they don't get the wrong idea that this uh, replaces your incident response team or your appsec team or whatever. So you've got the stakeholder buy-in. You've sold it. What are the kind of next steps or milestones that you went through standing this thing up to realizing it to the point where it's actually delivering value to the business on a consistent basis? Yeah, so I, I want to make clear that technically for where I currently work, that I didn't stand it up. It's actually been stood up for a very long time. So on previous roles, I I helped stand up these these programs as well. So So the milestones really are starting small with single applications or one piece of your business and then expanding out to encompass the whole thing. Sometimes, depending on your maturity model at your company, you're not ready for, you know, just say, go go hack my entire company. Can I ask you a question about, the, I'm hearing kind of land and expand is what I would see that as, is like oh, yeah, you exactly. get a foothold type deal. Would you start with either critical applications or would you look for early adopters that are more willing to work with you? Because I realize it might be a combination of both, but like, do you want to really try and push this on the critical applications so that they have an opportunity to get hardened faster? Or is it something, look for the early wins and the relationship wins where you can start to have kind of ambassadors that speak on your behalf, if that makes sense? So sort of a combination of both. What you want to focus on initially is those sites that have those pages and websites and parts of your company that have probably been scrutinized a lot already. So just by being on the Internet, so your main website, just by being on the Internet, you're going to have a quarter million people already have looked at it or whatever. Knocking on Um, the door all the time. Right. So start with the things that are kind of already there and probably pretty resilient already. And those are probably those those critical applications. But if there is something that is, you know, easily knocked over or whatever, you want to you want to stay away from those and then slowly expand to those as you initiate your program. Because when you first release a program, there's going to be an influx of researchers uh, because everyone wants to have that first blood. And I know that's a bad way of saying it, but like that's the terminology used. Um, it's, and, it's fair. That's probably uh, when the, the easiest to get the payouts to. So, I mean, exactly. it, that's it's mutually beneficial. <laughs> I, I hear you. But that also means that a whole bunch of traffic that wouldn't have been there before is is now hitting this thing in a way that it hasn't previously. Is that right? Exactly. So you want to kind of slow roll it a bit just so that that influx isn't hitting everything in your organization um, and can topple stuff. So. Keep your scope pretty limited initially. Keep it to the stuff that's kind of already battle-hardened and then expand as needed, and that will be your milestones. And then I guess when it comes to, you know, now you have a program established, I would imagine there has to be some type of matrix in terms of severity of what people find and what type of reporting, like how bad does it have to get before you think that you either have to start waking up the people that own the application or service, et cetera, or the leadership chain on the cyber side? Oh, man, that is a can of worms you just opened. Um, So there's a lot of aspects to this. So let's start with, let's go left to right from researcher submission all the way to like fix. From the researcher submission, 
most researchers will, so a good percentage of them, I wouldn't say most, will over-evaluate their risk pro, or the, the criticality of a bug they're submitting. And that makes sense. They're both, you know, they're doing it for some kind of payout, uh, points recognition or otherwise. And it makes sense to go high in your essentially negotiation. And so when you, when you first get a submission, there's, pro- it's probably going to be a, a bit higher than you would suspect. But once you evaluate the risk and the, Best way to do that is not go based on CVSS score or all of the other, you know, risk profiles that are out there. CVS 3.1 actually is getting a lot better, um, but I still think it has a ways to go. One of the things that I like is the OWASP risk rating calculator. Um, that takes into a lot more of the threat and impact of vulnerabilities and researchers kind of will understand that one and you can give it to them so that you can be transparent on what that risk rating is and why. Unfortunately, every risk rating score, even the OWASP risk calculator, has a criticality sense that doesn't really include the aspect of impact to the company to change, I guess would be the best way to say it. And how hard it is for them to remediate long term, whatever this thing is, that might be a very challenging or daunting task because there may be technical dependencies baked into that. Is that kind of what you're getting at? Kind of. And yeah. So one of the things that we implemented at a previous company was we adopted the same criticality level as the developers or sysadmins. So how that works well is essentially you're you're accepting a bug and you can state that the criticality to the researcher is high, medium, critical, whatever. But internally, you re-rate it to the complication or complexity of the of the fix. So and who it's something that takes no time. It's just a configuration change that we can just go toggle. That's an easy one version update or something like that, a little bit more significant or complete migration to some new uh, type of thing would be more significant. Is that what we're kind of going at? As well as the threat. So if a researcher found it, there's a good chance someone else might have found it. But if you don't see any indication that that is being exploited or targeted or anything from any other threat intelligence source or website or any anything, then even if it rates a 10.0 on the CVSS score, let's say that it is super high, like you have remote code execution, but just by doing things and let's even put it on your main website. But let's also say that it requires some, a little bit of insider knowledge or, or pre-knowledge and let's say that it it's a few URLs deep or folders deep in your website. Do you really need to call all hands on deck to get it fixed? Because it is still remote code execution on your main website. That is definitely a critical. But the risk of someone actually exploiting it for malicious purposes. I would, probably- think, I would think you're bumping into another uh, aspect, too, not to tease out burnout, but I would think. You know, there is the resource engagement aspect, too, of like cyber teams working with application or infrastructure teams. And, you know, you not to say you have a limited number of chats to use, but you (laughs) got to balance going to them and pulling the fire alarm versus going to them and saying, hey, there's this thing that we really need to address. 
can we try and work through it in a little bit more rapid than normal fashion as opposed to, you know, the get on a bridge and, and let's fix it, whatever the case is. Absolutely. Is it, is it a call everyone on a weekend critical? And so that's the that's the thing I love about the ratings that application teams like software development teams have is they have a like a critical literally means must be fixed within 24 hours, all hands on deck. And I love how that relates to and how you would the the psychology and the feeling that goes into that. Right. So if I'm going to rate something as a in a bug as a critical and and that essentially means all hands on deck must be fixed in 24 hours. I'm going to think twice about making something a critical on the bug bounty program. Right. And as long as that's well, well understood to your VDB program and, and it's completely okay to mark something as a critical on your VDP program and use a different criticality internally too. And I don't think a lot of people understand that that's, that's an okay thing to do. It doesn't have to be one-to-one. It does not (laughs) have to be one-to-one. Yep. I think actually, that, yeah, go ahead. actually brings up another question, Rob, at least. So, OK, so we get rated critical. A security researcher finds the absolute nightmare, a real deal, bad one. You know, I guess historically looking out there in bug bounty land, I guess the, the to your the, how we started this whole conversation is it's a relatively low entry fee to get access to a bunch of security researchers intellect. Are there some times where the caps that are set, like whatever the max payouts are, be it in loyalty program stuff or in actual cash, however that's done, is there a point at which, I guess, uh, like I, I always hear the quote from like leadership books where you say like great leaders know when to break the rules. They understand what they were established for and which situations they apply to and they know which ones they should actually say, hey, wait a minute, this this is not part of the normal concept. This is definitely an outlier and needs to be addressed as such. Do you see that happening or do you see people kind of being locked into policy where it's not as flexible, unfortunately? So I see a lot of um, inflexible programs out there as a researcher. Like I've seen plenty of programs that have a max payout of $500, no matter how how good of a bug you have. And that's really frustrating. That that pushes me away from those programs as a researcher because that I I feel like my time is worth more like especially if I'm finding a critical bug in your infrastructure and it takes me two weeks to find it and you pay me out for five hundred bucks, that's not a good value on my time. You're gonna find other ways to use your time. The part that hurts my heart about that is like I hope that folks still they don't get discouraged and they still stay on the blue side of the fence uh, or or I guess I realize the security research is kind of offensive red side. But I guess the good side, I guess what I'm getting at is like white hat as opposed to going to the the dark side. Um, I mean, they, they don't always. Right. Especially in countries outside the U.S., there are programs that will pay you for. And actually, even inside the U.S., uh, so ZDI, Zero Day Initiative, they pay for bugs that are outside of the programs of current bug bounty companies. So there are plen- plenty of places that you can sell to that are not like bad guy or criminal related. Like ZDI is a internal like I think they were purchased by HP. And what they do is do the negotiations after that to make sure that the bug is they're essentially, I hate to use this terminology, but sort of like used car salesmen, but they're good used car salesmen. They take the bug that you would have negotiated and upscale it 
and make it actually the value of it, and they give you a good number for it. So CDI is, you know, a good way. But getting back to Can, the point, yeah, go ahead. It, at least that I didn't expect to go down this rabbit hole, but I really want to ask the question now just to kind of get your opinion, at least if you have one. Chinese government nationalizing vulnerability disclosure program where they encourage folks to go to the government first as opposed to doing the responsible disclosure globally type thing and the implications thereof, at least on a global scale. As far as I know, that was the first country that actually forced that or made it law. I don't know, maybe that I'm late to the party and there were others before it, but how do you see that, I guess, impacting where Internet's kind of a global thing? And if that's a really bad question, we can hit fast forward. No worries. No worries. But it was so so I had a education in Chinese culture one time where a researcher came to a conference I was at and explained the culture of the Chinese hacking scene and the Chinese government. And it really, really altered my way of thinking about how global and nation state actors work. So I don't believe that there were a ton of researchers submitting bugs to U.S. bug bounty programs already. There might have been. I, I don't I don't know that for sure. But Chinese citizens submitting, I don't think, was a large percentage from a point of view of, of having a country have the bugs submit to the, the country first before they submit anywhere else. I'm a bit concerned, but that's on brand for China. Um, so it's not really a, a surprise and it's not really, I don't think, a big deal because most of the national Chinese get money from submitting to them anyways. I don't know if there's any kind of big shift it's that. not an earth-shattering oh. deal. I gotcha. Okay. We're going to take a quick break to hear a message from our sponsor, Fortinet. When we get back, I'll continue the conversation with Rob Fuller on vulnerability disclosure programs. Today's show is brought to you by Fortinet. Fortinet provides retailers with top-rated cybersecurity solutions covering the expanding attack surface. Advantages include centralized visibility and management, lower TCO, and top performance. Proven threat protection and seamless fabric integration delivers better, faster response to attacks across the entire network, including point-of-sale systems and other devices carrying sensitive information. And Fortinet helps simplify compliance with PCI DSS and other regulations. As digital innovation and the need to provide always-on customer experiences drive network transformation, retail cybersecurity has become more vital. It's essential to have a security partner that can provide simplified security and networking to keep customers' data safe and enable a superior consumer experience. For more information, contact the Fortinet team at retail at fortinet.com. Welcome back, everybody. Just circle back to the, I guess, VDP or bug bounty programs and actually getting them established, reel it back in a little bit. What does it look like after you, I guess on the internal side, so stepping away from the security researcher component of kind of the food chain and going to, okay, now we've established there's something that needs to be fixed. How do you typically work with the inside teams? I know that we kind of touched on it a little bit based on the criticality discussion of saying sometimes if it's bad enough, you know, we'll actually do like let's get on a bridge and all hands on deck type scenario. But when it's not that way, what have you seen as a successful way to work the backlog, if you will? Progress is perfection. It's not boil the ocean, but we got to constantly keep a little bit of motion happening so we're always getting a little bit better. 
how does that best play out? Or do you have any advice for folks that are trying to figure that aspect out? So the best way to do it, I think, is where you have people who are working the bug bounty program that understand code. And the way that like software developers make pretty good uh, VD program people, um, but essentially what you need is that empathy of the person fixing or patching, right? So when you reach out to them and say, hey, there's been a vulnerability disclosure program submission for your application, here it is, and here's the impact, and we've done our best to identify the impact, let me know if you feel differently. Because it's, it's, a, it's a conversation on both sides with the researcher and with the, with the app owners. And so when you have this conversation, you also want to be there to support it, too. You can't just be like, ah, eh, I'm going to create a ticket for you. Go fix it. Like, it's going to be a medium. Um, if you work with them and say, hey, I think this is how this works and this is how it can be patched or this is how going to fix. Can you try this? They're going to be way more receptive to that than here's a ticket. Go fix it. That completely makes sense, Rob, at least not knowing anything else. If you came to me with a recommendation as opposed to just bringing the problem, that's always going to be better received, right? Like, hey, we've identified a problem. This is what we think you can do about it. At least you've tried to give me some type of solution or put thought towards that part of the equation. That's definitely definitely good input. Rob, do you have any last-minute thoughts or points that you want to get out related to vulnerability or bug bounty that we haven't talked about related to any of the questions or whatever that you just want to give as general guidance to say, hey, world, I've got the mic in my hand. I'm talking about bug bounty. Here we go. Yeah, I'd like to talk a little bit about the, the negative side of things, if we can. Go into it. Absolutely. Okay, so there are negative parts of bug bounty programs. Most of the time you interact with researchers that are there to do a good deed and get paid for the deed that they're performing. One of the things that I, I kind of rail against actually that you actually said was responsible disclosure. And I really hate that term. Did that I get means, a cringe? I'm sorry, Rob. <laughs> 100%. Because that means that any other way is irresponsible. And I don't, I don't think that that is the truth, right? There's plenty of ways to do disclosure in responsible ways that don't include bug bounties. And responsible is in context to the the audience, right? So in the early 90s, mid-90s, responsible disclosure is putting it out on the Internet publicly for everyone to see because that's the only way the company would move forward. And so... I think that when people talk about responsible disclosure, that that is a very sensitive subject. I'll just say coordinated disclosure is always the best disclosure. I like coordinated. That's a better word choice. And do you think in terms of when I get the cringe now that you've framed it like that, do you think that responsible disclosure methods have changed over the years i.e. the reason that that other term coordinated disclosure needs to even be a, a topic of conversation. Like it, it's shifted how somebody would go about disclosing, hey, I just found a vulnerability because to your point, it used to be you had to force the hand, whereas now folks are more willing to work with, I guess, security researchers, it seems like. I think there are still times where companies will push back and 
when you say responsible, I mean responsible to who? To the company or to the users, right? And so sometimes it is more responsible to put the info out there, sort of like the Log4j stuff, right? Like if someone just reported that to, and I think that's kind of what happened, um, but I don't remember exactly, um, report it to the software developer and they just patched it and didn't say anything, like, Java is used so much. The whole seventy so, like, percent of the world. internet, right? Yeah, and so responsible disclosure, I I would say, is telling everyone of that kind of thing, right? Even if it made the the library owner look bad for a bit, like it was way more responsible to make that public. And so when I I think about the shifting phrasing of all this stuff. I think that all of the terminology still fits in one way or another. You just have to know that it's like saying the difference between pen testing and red teaming. Everyone has different definitions of it. But I do think that there is still a responsibility to the public and to different pieces of the Internet. Different uh, stakeholder groups. So therefore, the it depends on perspective. Like, absolutely. who are you responsible to is what you're getting at. I like the coordinated. Uh, I think I'm going to steal that from you, Robert. Consider it's a gold nugget that I picked up uh, from the conversation. Uh, that's a cool one. The other negative piece that can come into play is when you have individuals who want to either go public or extort for one reason or another or fight you in a negative way when you don't give them enough money or enough points or enough recognition in the program. And that's one of the things that I love about the platforms versus running it yourself. The platforms actually have legal, essentially NDAs and sign-offs on their page before you even uh, join a program to submit something. So you have that legal buffer and that, that experience from the platform owners to kind of handle those situations. Don't they also, beyond just the legal controls that you're talking about, Rob, don't they also kind of keep track of the personas? Like that person's going to have an account on that platform and they're over time going to get rated as a, I guess a really good researcher or a not very good researcher. There's some type of like satisfaction score that is bi-directional. Is that right? Exactly. Yeah. So, that's why I really love the platforms. And, and when you do have someone that is going high into the right as a military term or like really negative, you can pawn that off onto the platform owners and they know how they have specific people to handle those situations. Because if you're just spinning up your program for the first time, you are not going to have people on your team that know how to handle those situations. Well enough resourced. Um, yep. And you can get in some pretty serious legal and other situation and, and perspective issues very quickly if you don't have people with good heads on their shoulders and, and can handle like stressful situations when someone's calling you out like very negative names when someone is using very negative terms and keeping your cool and keeping it's your about professionalism you. <laughs> um, is really hard to do. It really is. And so like, you are the public face of that company when you are on a VDP program. Maybe not for the whole world, but definitely for researchers who have a bug that maybe they want to use for other things, right? So it's always good to have mature, ethical, empathetic people. Yeah. So good stuff, Rob. 
Those are the main things that I wanted to kind of touch on when it comes to the negative side of things, because there are stressful situations when it comes to BDP. And the final final bit I would say is on on the executive and, and leadership side, you don't really control when researchers want to look at your things. And so there really isn't good metrics and says we're doing well in this, we're doing bad in this. You just have to kind of keep track of of what researchers are picking up on over time. And sometimes you can look at systemic issues and find issues that keep coming up in 